Welcome to the Seek Go Create podcast. My name is Tim Winders and I'm a coach for business owners, executives, and leaders. I'm an author and the host of this podcast. My wife and I consider ourselves nomads and we currently travel, live, and work in our 39-foot RV, which Phil and I were just discussing just a moment before we jumped online here. I just Before we get started, I want to thank you all for downloading and listening. Plus, I want to continue to thank those that are commenting, sharing, and rating. Continue doing that. That is what helps us get the word out, and it just gets us good juice on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms. Today, I am... I, I've, I tell people this all the time. Every time I get to get in to do an interview, I am almost giddy the night before and just super excited because I love doing this. We have Phil Cook as our guest, and let me just give you a little bit of background. He, uh, he actually is a writer, television producer, and media consultant based in Burbank, California. We were just talking about the great weather there in California. He's worked with clients such as, and this is a heavyweight list, Billy Graham, Oral Roberts, Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, Salvation Army, Mercy Ship, Southern Baptist, the American Bible Society, and recently the Museum of the Bible. He produced Billy Graham's most seen program, Starting Over, which has reached over 1.5 billion in 200 countries in one day. And Joel Osteen said this. This was a great quote. Phil Cook is one of the greatest communicators of our generation. No pressure there, Phil, but say hello to everyone. Greatest communicator of our generation. Yeah, hello. No pressure at all. Hi. <laughs> I think uh, we may disprove that today. I don't know. I'll, try, I'll do my best not to. You know, you're talking to a guy that lives in an RV full time. We're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're recording this. When, you know, the world has got a lot of things going on, we will probably violate one of the basic rules of podcasting, which is try not to date it, because as I've just been meditating on this the last few days, I've just said, you know, we're going to have to go. I mean, I even got an email from you from your email this morning where you're talking about just, you know, churches and media in this current environment that we're in. But I don't want to totally focus on that. I, I want to say I like to spend a lot of research every time I've got a guest and you and I had met briefly about a year or two back and had a great conversation, but I, I want to start with something that just kind of gnaws at me being a guy from the Southern U S kind of growing up in the Bible belt. And I know you've got some roots there. You operate in Hollywood, California, and many of us really have no clue or concept about that culture, especially those of us that might be followers of Christ. We, we have people that are listeners that are business people and entrepreneurs, but we also have people that are ministers. And so, you know, sometimes we think that's the belly of the beast, but is it really kind of educate us on where you operate and where you do your business, Phil? Well, it's a good question. And a lot of people have that, 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 that concern, a lot of Christians, especially. In fact, I've had moms call me up and say, my, my son or my daughter is graduating from college with a degree in film or television or media, and they want to go to Hollywood. Should I let them? Is it dangerous? And um, my, my attitude is, look, I, I, for a long time ago, I stopped thinking of Hollywood as the enemy and started thinking of Hollywood as a mission field. It's so funny that as Christians, we, we boycott Hollywood, we criticize Hollywood, and my thought is, if that's the way to reach them with the gospel, why don't missionaries do that? You know, it's, do missionaries go to a third world country, surround a tribe, hold up signs, criticize them, call them names, say, we're not going to do business with you until you, you start thinking our way. That doesn't work. You know, what do missionaries do? They, they go to that tribe. They develop a trust relationship. They become one of them. And so 
the path we've chosen and many, many other Christians here in the industry have chosen is to come into Hollywood is, is really as virtual missionaries. And um, you'd be amazed at the number of high level people that are placed in Hollywood and um, working from the inside, I think is the only way to really change any organization, any institution. And so it's, it's, I just don't, you know, I think at the highest levels of the attorney business, the highest levels of the plumbing business, the highest levels of teaching, whatever, most of those people are probably not going to be Christians. So it's no different from Hollywood. It's just that Hollywood has this megaphone where they're able to broadcast movies and television and digital media out there. It's such a big way. So they get noticed perhaps in a bigger way than, than other industries. But no, I just think uh, Hollywood is not anti-Christian. In fact, everybody I know in the industry here, Christian or not, knows that I'm a Christian and I've never gotten any pushback at all. In fact, I, I don't want to rant on this, but you really touched a hot button with me. And that <laughs> is that one of the things I tell young Christians who are coming to Hollywood is don't lead with your faith, lead with your talent. So often we get young people that are excited. They come to Hollywood. I had one kid that came out and he went to a producer's office and said, God's called me to come and change Hollywood. And I'm here to change this industry for the gospel. And of course they laughed him right off the lot. They just laughed him out of the building. But if you come out here and you're an amazing writer, amazing director, amazing actor, amazing producer, that gets their attention. And once you develop that trust and that respect, they'll listen to anything you have to say. So I just tell people, you know, impress them with your talent first, lead with that. And then they're much more open to hearing you share your convictions and your faith. So, so it's not really the... I say the boogeyman. It's not really the boogeyman that a lot of us, and you know, and and I, I think you know one of the things that I've heard it said about you is that you are, um, you're, you're as critical of those that are followers as you are of anyone else. And I actually fit into that category too. And so we could have a fun, we could have a fun time today. Unfortunately, <laughs> hopefully we won't beat up on ourselves and all too much. But yes. but many times we look for enemies. And, and, yeah. and, you know, sometimes we, it's political, sometimes it's movies, the entertainment industry. And so, so it's, it's really not that boogeyman that we all have come to believe that are from not that part of the world. Correct. That's right. And, and, you know, years ago, I'll give you a great example. Years ago, as you said, I live in Burbank, California, right here in the heart of Hollywood. And um, years ago when our daughters went to Burbank high school, uh, there was a school bus stop right outside the high school and some, I forget who it was, but some studio had put up movie posters for an R-rated movie and the poster design was really, really sexual. It was just not appropriate for school kids to be seeing at all. And some parents who were Christians got upset. They wanted to do a boycott. They wanted to do a protest. They wanted to get angry. And I said, well, hold on a minute. I think there's some stages we could do before that. So I just called up the sign company. And I, and I explained the situation. And this lady on the phone said, oh, my gosh, you're exactly right. We, we probably just completely overlooked that. We'll be out there in an hour and we'll have it completely changed out. And they did. So I just think that sometimes we get so worked up over stuff that has a much easier and simpler solution. In fact, I, it, you know, as long as we're talking about Christians, I'll go on to say that some ministries out there, they use their anger more for a fundraising tool than a tool to actually try to engage the culture. So, you know, when we start criticizing people for saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, well, first of all, remember when we did that a couple of years ago, boy, that caused a revival in America, huh? Um, that didn't work at all. And, but when we do that, very often, it's a better fundraising tool than it is a tool to actually change anything. And that frustrates me quite a bit. Hmm. So I just think we need to be more discerning in the way we engage the culture. 
Right. And, and you know, one of the things, uh, and, and I'll go ahead and, and go here again, I'm going to violate some things we talk about in podcast. We are recording this. I'll just go ahead and announce that we're recording it on the last day of March in the spring of 2020 when there are changes going on all over culture, society, even in, in church world. And, and we don't know when this is released or when someone actually listens to it, what will actually be going on. But, you know, we're seeing things, you know, I, I guess one of the things that's kind of been weighing on me, and I'll just love to get your opinion on this, is that things like you just brought up are really magnifying some of the small things we really have some massive issues that we're addressing right now because at the time of recording this, our culture, we have no sports. We have no entertainment, essentially. We have no church gatherings. In most of our country, U.S., we have worldwide listeners. Most of the world is essentially shut down, no education and things like that. So, so really, we now are going to be forced to focus on those things that are most important. And I am not excited about the times we're in, but maybe this is a reawakening. What are your thoughts? Well, there's no question. I mean, we are in the COVID-19 crisis right in the heart of it. And uh, things are dramatically changing. I've been flooded. You know, part of what we do at our, our team at Cook Media Group is work with churches and ministry organizations, helping them tell their story through media. We, we jokingly say we help Christians not suck at the media. And if you've ever seen much Christian television and Christian movies, you'll know we're very busy. We have a lot of work to be done out there. And, uh, and just during this particular crisis, it seems like we've been flooded with calls about live streaming because so many churches, I read a LifeWay statistic that up to this point, before the crisis, 41% of churches in America had never offered anything to their congregation online. Nothing. No live stream, no tools, no resources, no downloads, no email blasts, nothing. And guess what? It's a wake-up call for those guys. And so we've had churches that have live streamed for years calling us to how to make it more effective. Because even if you've been live streaming, suddenly now 100% of your congregation is seeing you through a camera. That's a whole different experience. And then some churches who are very small and have never done this before ask us for advice about how to get it up and running and how to actually make it happen. So it is getting people's attention. And I do think a number of things are changing the way we work, the way we worship. I mean, we're not going to go back to the way things work. That's not to say, you know, real live physical worship is not important. Community is important. However, we're always going to have a live stream audience. And I think we'll emerge from this, you know, the, the, if there's anything good to be said from this, I think it's pastors are finally taking that online audience seriously. Uh, before it was, look, we'll just put a camera up in the balcony, show them the service if we want to. But let me tell you something. I, I, even before this crisis happened, we had churches that we worked with that took their live stream seriously. They welcomed them. They embraced them. And as a result, that live stream audience was giving as much as a third of the total income to that church. So think about that for a minute. You could activate your live stream to support you because they feel like they're welcome and they're a part of that congregation. So for a lot of reasons, I think pastors are seeing this in a whole new light, and I'm absolutely thrilled about it. Yeah, I, I, I think that what we're going to see is a new normal, and, and, and obviously by the time people are listening to this, there may be some of that beginning to crystallize and, and gain some clarity. I don't know, though. I, I think we're going to be in for a change. I mean, you, you know, we were just discussing before we, you know, flipped the record on that you have a travel schedule that has changed. 
And we we are somewhat grounded here in the Colorado area, which is not a bad place to be, but we're grounded here for a season and we're not sure how long. And and you know, one of the things I love about what you do, Phil, I actually I was saved in a business setting. So I've always had a business mindset around the gospel and the good news and I'm an engineer by training, Georgia Tech. I think you and I, when we met, I discussed I'm from the Atlanta area, and I think you've had spent some time there. And But I always have looked at many ministries and said, why are we not doing things differently? And it seems like you ask questions like that. Is that is that true? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I wrote a book early on. One of my first big published books was called Jolt. Um, and it was really about aligning yourself to, to, to embrace the change that's happening in our culture. And in studying for that book and researching for that book, we discovered that, I mean, change is probably the most difficult thing people do in their life. We discovered that the vast majority of open heart surgery patients within two years go back to their old lifestyle. You know, the one that got them there in the first place, the cheeseburgers and the smoking and the drinking. And, and I thought if the threat of death doesn't make you change, what in the world will? And so I find in working with churches and ministries, it's just shocking the number of churches that this is the way we've always done it and we have no intention of changing. You know, it's not working anymore, but it worked back in 1989, so it should should keep working. So we're going to keep flogging this dead horse. And um, I think we just, if we're going to be responsive to the culture, you know, it's funny, God's word never changes, the scripture says, but trust me, everything else does. People change, trends change, styles change, culture changes. And if we don't learn how to embrace those changes, then we're never going to be very relevant and earn a place at the table when it comes to sharing our message. Yeah. And one of the, listen, I, I, I was sharing this just a second ago with you. I, when I, when I research guests, I, I have fun because I like to spend usually about an hour or so just kind of gathering some info. And I've been on your email list for a little while, so I'll read your blog and, and study some things. But I picked up a couple of your books and read them in the last few days. And yes, I, so I read, and we'll, we'll include this in the notes, I read One Big Thing, uh, which is a great book. I think you wrote that one in 2012. And then The Way Back, which has been on my to-do list to read for some time. And in many ways that book was extremely prophetic about what we're going through right now because you really are in, in calling out you really are and i think and i know you're doing it in a loving way right we're doing it in a loving way but you are calling out us that it's time for us to operate in a different way and you know some of the things that you talk about is is it really from a from a church world and let's just we'll say the small c church we really operate out of an area of comfort in first world society. And when I read it that you didn't, I think you may have specifically said that, but that's really what I gathered. And you compared a lot of historical and, and some things that we need to do, but can you just share, give just a quick overview for folks of that book. And then also maybe relate it to what we're seeing now, a couple of years later from the actual release of the book. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the way back, you know, the subtitle is what catches most people, how Christians blew our credibility and how we get it back. Yeah. And um, uh, the co-writer, Jonathan Bach and I uh, had spent a lot of time sitting around a fire pit wondering about why Christianity is losing any place in the culture. You know, we're continuing to be marginalized. There was a time when we were just ignored. Now we're openly ridiculed on the evening news and in primetime television. And we wondered why. And, and we, all, we went back to the fruit of the spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, long suffering, patience. We want to be known for that. We should be known for that. 
But I'm afraid if in LA or Atlanta or Dallas or Chicago, if you went out on the street and did a man on the street interview and said, what do you think of when you think of Christians? Most people would respond with phony, hypocritical, power hungry, pushy, judgmental. The things that we just don't, you know, how, where did, how did that happen? And we started really looking at why that disconnect happened between how we think we are and how the rest of the world sees us. And the interesting thing, particularly to how it relates to now, is that one of the areas we looked at was we, we tried to find a period in history when the church, Big C Church, was really impacting the culture in a significant way. And we had to go all the way back to the first generation of Christians, the first, you know, the early church during the Roman Empire. And the interesting thing about that is that generation of Christians, remember, it was illegal to be a Christian, for one thing. Um, you could, there were provinces throughout the, the Roman Empire where you could kill a Christian on sight, and it was no problem at all. You wouldn't have any problem with that. Um, Christians had no power, no authority, no money, no influence. They couldn't pass laws. They couldn't criticize. They couldn't boycott anything. They couldn't even go public with their teaching. And so we discovered the one thing they felt like they could do is change their behavior and start within them. And so one of the interesting things that historians, Rodney Stark, uh, the historian, particularly as a sociologist, has particularly brought this out in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, is that during periods like the plague, when the plague would hit Rome, and I'm thinking of the you know coronavirus now, he, Stark says when the plague hit Rome, the Romans were famous for getting out of town as quick as they could. They ran. I mean, there are actually documented stories of, of the Romans being so cowardly. In fact, a family would be leaving town, and if grandma coughed, they'd dump her in the ditch and just keep on moving. And um, one Roman uh, emperor, one, one leader, actually wrote a letter and said, Romans are the most cowardly people I know. He said, however, these Christians are the bravest people I know. He said, they go, they race to the center of the, of the plague to minister to people they don't even know at the risk of their own life. He said, I don't understand it. I don't know why that is. And um, historians today look at that, and Stark in particular says that, that disconnect so caused the Romans to create a shift in their thinking that it really forced them to rethink who these Christians are and who's this God they talk about all the time. And because of that and other things like infanticide, the way Christians would respond to babies being abandoned and other things like that, over time, Christians just, I mean, the Romans just completely had this mind shift. And within a remarkably short period, Christianity became the dominant faith of the Roman Empire. And the point of that in the book is, it's not our teaching so much that changes people. It's not our, you know, meeting together in church that changes people. It's how we act. And I think now in this virus period, the way we respond to the virus, are we jumping on social media and terrorizing everybody and going hysterical? Are we getting into fights over toilet paper at the grocery store? Are we being the, or are we being the people who are the calming factor in the culture? Are we the people that others look to and think, I want to be like those guys. That, that's who I want to be like, because that's the way the early Christians were. And I think that was a big reason why it grew so quickly. Yeah, I've, I've had this, that kind of brings up a theory that I've had, and I'd love your thoughts on it. The, the I'll call it the first world church, because obviously there's been issues for some time, but first world church, our society, we really are more about comfort and and comfort is very important to us. And really, in many ways, our, our church culture is about comfort. People come through the doors 
And, you know, if if people had to stand in church, how many people would show up? I mean, you know, you hate to ask that question. If we were uncomfortable, if the air conditioning wasn't, you know, you know, I'm not sure that anyone in the South would go to the church, go to church if the, they didn't have air conditioning out. Or, or and, and it is more of a and I know as a media guy, because I'm going to we're going to go into some media and marketing and all in just a moment. But but really, it is designed for people to come through the doors, be comfortable and and then they leave they consume and then they leave and you gave some ex- some great examples of what to do next kind of some call to actions at the end of this book and some of them were birthed out of actual churches but i found it interesting that many of the examples you gave were not church you know ministry so what are your thoughts about that and in light of where we're at now are we being pushed to a level of discomfort that might change us? Well, it's interesting you say that. Um, one of the things we discovered in our research for the book was that 76% of Americans don't even know their neighbors' names. And I'm amazed at the number of Christians that tell, give me the same answer. They don't, they don't know their neighbors' names. I mean, sometimes we live in a high-rise apartment, but even in suburbia. Um, and so my thought was in the book, we don't have to go witnessing to people. We don't have to hand out tracts. Just get to know your neighbor's name. Take, take over a pie. Just start a conversation with them. Little things like that can have huge implications down the road. And, and the other thing that I've always been amazed by is if you look at all the hot button issues in our culture right now, all the hot button issues, controversial issues, relate to sex, gender, and marriage. And I'm thinking, you know what, what if Christians really got serious about our marriages and about our families? You know, honestly, if you look at the statistics, we have nothing to brag about when it comes to divorce. We're about the same out there as the rest of the culture is. But what if we got so serious? And, and obviously, I don't want to be a jerk. I understand that there are causes, there are reasons some people have to go through that horrible experience. But what if we really made a commitment to make our marriages and our families work better to the point where people actually look at us and go, that's the marriage I want. That's the family I want. I want to be like those people. Um, so often in our culture, people point to Christians and say, I don't want to be like those people. I, I don't want to have anything to do with those guys. But what if we turn the tables and we had the kind of marriages and family life that people just emulated and said, I want to be that way. One of the things that Stark in, in another book that Rodney Stark wrote, he said that people become, that they convert to a faith. Number one reason is because they want to be like those people. Not because they have a, you know, a moral challenge or not because they have an awakening or this moment of, you know, revelation, but they just want to be like those people. And so, number one, we need to be the kind of people others want to emulate. And certainly we have problems, we have challenges, we have frustrations. But like we said, during this virus, how are we responding to those? I want to respond in a way that other people look at us. I was on a plane uh, before all this happened, early, super early flight. It was like six in the morning. Nobody flies that early. So I got upgraded. And I sat next to an older lady and she was struggling getting her seatbelt on. And so I reached over and I uh, fixed her seatbelt, made a joke in the process. And I've always discovered that, you know, laughter, humor is like a magnet to people. Uh, You know, just have a little fun with your life, you know, have a little lighten up. And I cracked a joke and she said, whoa, 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 whoa. What's, how can you make a joke at six in the morning? That's, that's not, not, not normal. And we laughed and gave me an opportunity to share where my joy comes from. And I think just if we just led with joy, it would draw people to us. We wouldn't have to think about witnessing and sharing our faith. Trust me, they would come to us. So if we could just start changing 
you know, our behavior, the way we respond to things and become the kind of people that others look at and say, I want that kind of marriage. I want that, I want that kind of integrity. I want that kind of children. I want, the, I want stuff like that. Then we'd have people asking us questions about this God we serve. Who is this God you serve? And, and uh, it would, I think it would change everything. Yeah, that actually brings me back to the other book I read of yours, which is The One Big Thing. And, yeah. and one of the things that was interesting to me, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a business coach, real goal-oriented, and so I dig those kind of books. Yeah. But uh, over the last few years, I've spent more time around people, we'll just call them, uh, I, I went to Bible school for a few years, and one of the things I've noticed is that people of faith sometimes get, they struggle with that type conversation. And, and I'll just go ahead and say it, they hyper-spiritualize it. And yeah. so, I, and, and so I'm, I'm actually going to kind of ask you to almost have a discussion about those two, because it's some, in some ways I see people taking what you discussed in the one big thing and the way back, and it causes the issue. Uh, in other words, they, they're looking for that one big thing when in many ways, in the way back, what you say really people should do is just go out and love people. And if I'm wrong on that, let me know. But sometimes people are looking for one big thing when they just need to go out and love their neighbor. Well, that's true. That's true. I, I think, uh, you know, one of the things I, I'd read an earlier book called Unique, Telling Your Story in a, in, in a World of Brands and Social Media. And um, that was really toward organizations, churches, nonprofit organizations, ministry organizations, really trying to figure out, you know, brand is really about perception, how the rest of the world sees you. And that's important in a world today where people see about 10,000 media messages every single day, where we've actually, we're so distracted, we've changed our behavior so that we make decisions within four to eight seconds. Uh, one study that I just uh, am fascinated with indicates that when we meet somebody for the first time, we decide what we think of that person within the first four to eight seconds, which means you haven't had time to talk with them, get to know them, know anything about them. But we've got other things to do. Our iPhone's ringing. I got an email to check. We've got social media. We've got things to do. So we just have literally changed our behavior and we start making decisions about things before we even know what they're about. I, I, it's funny. I tell pastors in that light, that eight second filter, I'm glad your sermon's anointed. I'm glad your worship is fantastic. But in an eight second world, What's, what's the parking lot experience like at your church? You know, what does your lobby look like? Who, who's the first person a new visitor meets when they walk in the door? Because trust me, they're making decisions long before they get to their pew. But anyway, going back to your, your, your question, um, I wrote Unique for Organizations. Then I started, and I wrote it because I discovered that the organizations that really break through, the ones that make a huge impact in the world, are not organizations that are average at a bunch of stuff. They're organizations that are remarkable at one thing. They're unique. And so after I wrote that book, I started looking at people and leaders and thinking, you know, it's pretty much the same way. And I would interview people when I would speak at conferences or events. And most people in the room will tell me, you know, Phil, I, I'm pretty okay at a lot of different things, but I can't say I'm really good at any one thing. And um, what, one guy came up to me, he was in his late seventies. He said, Phil, I've had a job all my life. I feel like I've contributed in some way, but he said, honestly, I couldn't tell you what I'm put on the earth to do. I, I don't know what I was created to accomplish with my life. And I thought, how sad in, in your 70s. And so I started pouring my experience from working with organizations into helping people understand maybe what their calling and their purpose is. And so many, it's so funny, so many people are all about passion, you know, and I get screenplays. I get movie screenplays from Christians in particular who will write me a note and send me a screenplay and say, Phil, I'm so passionate about writing. And it doesn't take me long to realize, yeah, but they're pretty terrible at it. They're just not good writers. 
And so I've learned that, you know, it's not about passion. It's about figuring out what you're really wired to do, what God puts you on the earth to accomplish, your gifts, your talents, your abilities. And it's not about a job. It's not about being a coach or being an insurance salesman or being a pastor or being a teacher. It's more about your personality, your wiring, you know, what you were really created to do. And so I think that it, it's really different. I, I do think that um, we need to go out and serve people and, and just be somebody others want to emulate, but it helps if we kind of know where our lane is. I do think that people really have, a incredibly de have an incredible desire to know um, kind of the area I focus on. And, and we often think, you know, being okay at a lot of stuff is great. But let me tell you, if you have a, if you feel God's called you to accomplish something in life, if you feel like you have a message to share, it's time to focus on that. May, you know, make it a lens that you view everything through. And that's really how to break through and, and get noticed. Does that, does that make sense? Or is that crazy? No, yeah. Th yeah, that's really good because one of the things that I noticed is that sometimes people just get kind of bound up and not able to do anything because they're waiting for that. I'll just go ahead and say they're waiting on the word from the Lord to give them the instruction to go to the next thing. And, and kind of going back to what you've said in my industry also, I, I see people that have just really excelled at high levels and, and they are good at that one thing, but it's real interesting. A lot of people have stumbled upon it. I, I'm, I'm guessing that with, you know, your line of work, my line of work, I mean, I, if you had asked me when I was, you know, at Georgia Tech, if I would just be doing what I'm doing now or, and, and so I guess there's, I guess one of the things that I always ask people when they, when we are attempting to come up with that focus is do we need to allow some stretch along the way? <laughs> well, yeah, it's in interesting. They asked the great sculptor, Michelangelo, how he carved such great statues. And he said, his answer was, I don't carve statues. I just remove the excess stone so the angel that's inside can come out. Yeah. And I often think that's what I do working with leaders, pastors and leaders and, and uh, people like that, because so often we think, well, you know, maybe I should be podcasting or maybe I should be making movies or maybe I should be preaching or maybe I should be doing this or maybe I should be doing that. Maybe I should be an entrepreneur and so much and they fail and they try something else and it fails. And these things kind of build up. And sometimes you have to just clear all that stuff away, chip it all away and get to the essence of who they really are. And when you figure it out, it's, it's, it, it's really a revelation. And my book, One Big Thing, Discovering What You Were Born to Do, is really not a mystery. It's, it's actually pretty simple stuff, just some simple questions to ask that, um, I, you know, I noticed, for instance, famous athletes just said, well, Phil, I was always the fastest kid on the block. I could always catch the pass that nobody else could catch. I could always dunk a ball when I was 11. Nobody else could. Um, suddenly, and, and the thing is, most people see stuff about us that we don't see. In the book, I give the illustration that, remember that being on the prom committee in high school, we sat around a table and people said, Sam, you're pretty funny. Why don't you be the host? Judy, you're good with numbers. Why don't you keep the budget? John, you're, you're really creative. Why don't you come up with an advertising slogan? Other people notice what we're good at and sometimes we don't. We don't pay attention. And so I often say, go back and think about what people have noticed about you over the years and suddenly this puzzle will start coming together about what you were really created and wired sure. for. And so you've been in this industry for a number of years in, in, we call it media now, but movies and entertainment. How, go back a little bit. How, how did you get started with that? 
And uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about that. And then as, as we wrap up this podcast, I'm going to actually get some free advice for you. For those ministers and business people out there, I'm going to have you give some some media advice, if that's okay with you. But how'd you get started? And let's kind of go, let's, let's hear a little bit about how Phil got into this industry. How I got started is a case of your stumble theory. Yeah. See, um, that, see, I, see you're proving me right. It is. It, I was a, I was a preacher's kid in Charlotte, North Carolina, and um, I had no desire, no thought about going into the entertainment or media business. And um, I didn't know what to do. I played piano all my life because I was a preacher's kid and you're supposed to. And, um, but I had a unique thing that I had a group of guys, crazy guys that were friends of mine in high school. And we took my dad's old super eight film camera, movie camera, and we made little movies. It were little three-minute reels back in those days. And we made army movies and mafia movies and war movies and space movies and just crazy little stuff. And we did it never thinking it's something I'd do for a living. We just had fun. And um, I went to college. And I thought, well, you know, and I went a 1,000 miles away to college. And I thought, well, maybe, um, maybe I'll find guys in college that would want to make movies with me. So I took my dad's camera with me and I took some of my movies with me to show them what I'd been doing and see if they wanted to do it. No thought that you'd do this for a living. And uh, the first day class, I went to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, unpacking my suitcase the first day, a couple films rolled out and Rod Carlson, a friend of mine across the hall came over and saw and said, Hey, I'm taking a film class. I can show you how to edit those things together. I didn't even know you could edit film. That's how stupid I was. And um, we went down to the film department that night and we worked for a number of hours on my little movie. And the professor happened to be there working on a project of his in the back. And as he left, he walked over, introduced himself to me. And I'm a freshman. It's my first week of school. He introduced himself and said, you know, I've been watching your little movie over, over your shoulder for a while. And he said, um, I've got students that have been taking, for three, taking classes in filmmaking for three years and still don't do this well. Would you mind if I showed your movie in my class tomorrow? And I said, well, if I could sit on the back row, sure. I go in the class the next day, sit on the back row. He showed my movie and it was nothing to scream. Trust me. I mean, it's pretty embarrassing, but he showed my movie and they talked about it when it was over the class discussed it. And I have to say this moment of revelation hit me. I don't think I've had anything this crystal clear before or since this, this thought occurred to me that if I can do something with a camera that makes people talk like this, this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. And I literally changed my major. I was a music major that day because it's all I knew to do. I literally changed my major from music to media and communications, and I've never looked back. And um, it's been a long, long journey. But just the fact, and by the way, let me say this. If anybody listening or watching has somebody in your life that, that did that for you, like that professor did for me, go find them and thank them. I, Something like 25 or 30 years later, I tracked that guy down. He was living in Pasadena at the time. Tracked him down. I went to his house. We sat on his front porch and cried. I told him everything I have accomplished in my whole life pretty much is the result of that, that one night in the film class because you want, decided to show my film. And so I, it's just a great feeling to be able to do that. But um, I, I just stumbled into it, and I've just been determined never look back. I mean, we probably had... 60 kids in that major in college. Today, I can only count probably two that are still left in the film and media business, Me and I'm one of them. So, um, yeah, it was not anything I'd planned. <laughs> I'd planned it all. Yeah, so maybe we need to write a book, you know, One Big Stumble or something like that. Maybe 
Uh, you know, because uh, I, similar with my life, it's kind of been the same way. So, so you've got, I mean, we, I've got a list here of people that you've worked with, projects you've worked on. I mean, Billy Graham, I could ask questions about him, the Museum of the Bible, but a project or two that jumps out at you that that really had a big impact, not that the others didn't, but one you might can share with us just to tell us maybe a little bit of behind the scenes, just to tell us a little bit more about it or, or something, a project that uh, you've worked on. And I know you've had so many, so that could be a tough question. Well, certainly, you know, we did all the music, all the media leading up to the launch of the Museum of the Bible. We were there, we had a crew on site in DC for three and a half years, filming and construction, filming their collection, which is really remarkable. And if anybody that's that's watching or listening has not been there, you, you got to go. I mean, the Museum of the Bible is the kind of thing that you could take a non-believing friend to and not be embarrassed. I mean, be, in, be amazingly proud of it because, you know, even people that don't even remotely consider themselves consider themselves Christians are blown away when they go to the Museum of the Bible. It's just amazing. And so we were very fortunate to be involved in that. Um, we're doing a documentary right now on the rise of Christianity in China. So we literally spent all of November in China, India, Mongolia, Japan, and Korea. Oddly enough, 30 days or 40 days before the virus was found, uh, we got out of there just in time. But um, probably the thing that I would mention is, you know, we've worked with a lot of contemporary churches and ministry organizations from the Version Bible app to Hillsong uh, Church and the Hillsong Channel and those guys. We, we just know a lot of people in those worlds. But, um, you know, going back 20 years to that Billy Graham program you mentioned is interesting because I love the Graham organization, the fantastic organization and what they do. But at that time, they had a leadership team that was a little nervous about trying new things. And Billy came to us and said, we want to do a one hour television special that somebody who would never in a million years watch a Billy Graham show would actually watch. We want to break the mold and do something different. He was ready. I'm afraid his leaders weren't. And so we took him at his word and we did a back at the time, a cross between Billy Graham and MTV. It was pretty wild. We opened it with a guy committing suicide in his car. Um, and just, it was wild. We took three of his messages, cut them all up and changed them around and told a different, just, it was something they had just never done before. And most of his leaders hated it. In fact, a couple came to our editing room um, to yell at us <laughs> during the process. And when it was over, the guy that had to sign off on it said, this will never be broadcast. He said, this, will, this is not what we're about, and this will never be seen. And one of the inside guys, one of his team told me that that night he left the screener, it was a VHS tape back in those days, he left the screener on his coffee table, and his wife walked in later, not knowing what it was, popped it in the VCR and watched it. And this friend of mine said she went to her husband and said with tears in her eyes, honey, I don't know what this is, but people need to see this. And so they were doing three nights in prime time, like a Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and they decided, okay, we'll air it, but they buried it in the middle night. And they even put a guy on the front saying, now, friends, you're, what you're about to see is really weird, but we'll just go along with this. And I thought, oh, come on. Anyway, they aired it. The Los Angeles, and they aired it globally. The Los Angeles Times reported two and a half billion people watched the program worldwide. And an insider from inside the organization told me it generated 1 million calls for salvation. 1 million people phoned in for salvation around the world. And I thought, that is, that's a perfect example for creative people. 
If you feel like God's called you to something and you're telling a story, fight for it. Fight for it. Certainly there's some battles that aren't worth fighting. There's some battles I'm happy to give in on and change. But when I look back at that, I'm so grateful that, um, you know, we stuck by our guns and we, we really stood with it because it had such an impact on people. I'm told it's the most viewed program that's ever been produced in the history of the Graham organization. And again, I love those people. They do amazing work and, and great stuff. But at that particular moment, they were in a period of transition. They were in a period of, of change. And so whenever you encounter organizations like that, very often our natural tendency is just to pull back, kind of hunker down and no, we're not going to, we're not going to try anything new right now. So stick with your vision. All you creative people listening and watching, stick with that vision. If God's called you to do something, remember the stakes are high. And we need to fight. So I have to I have to follow up with that, Phil, because I'm sitting here thinking, uh, regardless of that vision, regardless of the confidence level that one might have, interacting with a Billy Graham, or it's all relative. I mean, it could be in different industries and all that. There would be a tendency to back down, backpedal, compromise, whatever words you want to use. And you've got some history to look back on that one example. And I'm sure you've got many that you could go to. But, but, uh, but, but listen, how does one, I mean, how did you know that that was the vision that needed to be portrayed? Now, I, I think some Holy Spirit can put it in there, but, but, but what are some practical and spiritual ways that we can just know that this is the message it needs to get out? Well, from a spiritual perspective, you're exactly right. I think the Holy Spirit can, can really point things out and show you stuff, reveal things, and give you a certain confidence level. However, we often as Christians forget that we need to be thinking from a practical level as well. And if you're a professional, creative person, you know when it works. You just kind of know when it works. Great artists can step back, and they, they, they know when it's time to stop painting. Uh, a composer knows when it's time not to put one more instrument into that mix. Um, you kind of know, and it does take confidence. One of the things that I always hated about myself was it took me a long time to, to, to learn to develop that confidence. I was always nervous about it. Is it, is it good enough? Does it work? And um, I've learned over the years that certainly there are a lot of small battles that I'm willing to lose or willing to give up. But I've, I've learned also if there are certain battles I really want to fight for, to fight. I mean, we've had clients we fired over the years because they just didn't get the vision. Um, we love them. We shake hands and walk away. But, if you know, I feel like the clock is ticking on our time on earth. And we have a limited amount of time to accomplish what we feel like God's called us to do. So um, I just, one of the things that I'm really big on right now is, teaching leaders how to lead creative people mm. because i think there's so many leaders in the church today that just don't have experience leading creatives how do you lead a designer a video guy a, a writer filmmakers how do you lead those and you know it's so it's so funny i was telling someone the other day that for years in the grammy awards when someone would pick up win a grammy how often would they go up and say you know what i learned to sing in church i learned to sing in my gospel choir i learned to sing in my my worship on my worship team I think in the future, people are going to get Oscars. Filmmakers will get Oscars and say, you know what? I started because I was a video person at my local church. I started in the industry because I ran camera for my worship services. And I just really believe that the next generation of worship leaders may be filmmakers. And we need to honor those people and raise them up in the church and lead, learn to lead them and help them really accomplish what God's called in their lives. So I, I don't I didn't really answer your question very well, but I do think that that until we learn to recognize the value of creativity, let me just say, maybe in closing, that 
we forget that God chose to, you know, God has a lot of attributes, but he chose to introduce himself in the first verse of the Bible as a creator. And we are, we are made in his image and we are called to be creative. And I just think we have to raise the bar when it comes to creativity in our engaging the culture. Sure. That's, that's a great lead into, I have a quote that I wrote down here that I wanted to ask you if you actually said this, that Christian culture lacks creativity. (laughs) I read, I read that quote. So if it's not, if you didn't say that, but it seems like you might could have said that. So, um, but, but that kind of piggy, that kind of piggybacks on what you're saying here is that we need to foster it better. It's probably there, we just aren't allowing it to come forth. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, and I'm, I do have to say I'm seeing a lot more of it recognized than I did. I mean, remember that in the, back in the, the Middle Ages, Christians led the world in, in creativity and culture. They were the leaders. They were the artists and the designers and the, and, and the great. They were the, the, the great writers. And, and during, you know, when I was growing up, you know, great art was a John Chick track. You remember those? Um, we just didn't appreciate the power of, of design and we didn't appreciate the power of great writing. Now I do see that with a lot of the young contemporary churches coming along, they recognize the power of design. They recognize the power of good writing of powerful music and they see how that engages people. And um, so I do think the ship is turning. We're still, you know, producing some bad movies, but you know, Hollywood still produces bad movies. So I think that we have a lot to learn, but I think that we're starting to see the investment in creativity really does pay off. And, and I, I, I've seen a remarkable change in my lifetime. That's for sure. I actually believe that there's somewhat of a cultural, I don't, I don't even know how to describe this, but at the time of recording this, we're a few months out from Kanye West kind of professing his faith and doing it very boldly and also at the same time being somewhat critical of our, you know, our religious structure and, and, and then, you know, others, Justin Bieber and others that are coming in that are, that are already creatives that are coming in that I, that's probably going to have some, somewhat of an impact. Would you agree? Yeah. And I, it's always interesting to see the onslaught of critics, you know, from the church when that happens. Um, people are very quick. Christians are really quick to, to nail these guys. But the truth is, why don't we give them the benefit of the doubt? Sure, some of them may fail. Some may crash and burn. Some may change their mind or we find out they weren't serious. Um, sometimes there's no question that stars on their way downhill suddenly grasp onto Christian music or, you know, Christian culture in some way trying to revive th- their career and they're not serious. But I say, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's see, what could it possibly hurt? I think anything that points people toward Jesus, um, it, you know, even, even Paul wrote about whether they do it sincerely or not, you know, he still rejoices. So let's get people pointing people toward Jesus, and then hopefully we can um, uh, start to turn that corner. And uh, I, I, I just think the more conversations we have about it, the better. I, I'm, I'm excited that anybody's talking about how we can use music and art and uh, writing and literature and filmmaking to to tell the story. Yeah, that's good. It, we actually, we talked about this earlier, but there's probably going to be a new normal that comes out of this time that we're in. And, and, and you've, you've, the, both of us are mature. I don't like to say that we're older, but we're mature. And so we've been, we've seen some cycles. We've seen some things happen. I, I, this one feels a little bit different to me. I'm not sure why. And I could be wrong. You know, we could be back to, quote unquote, normal soon. But anytime there's a new normal, my observation is, is there are some skills, some techniques, mindsets 
that we need to adjust, some we need to carry forward, and some we need to leave behind. And so with all of your skill and all the the background that you have, what are some of the, and you could take any one of those or all of them, skills, techniques, mindset, that you you believe that we absolutely will need with whatever this new normal may look like? And again, it, we could we could be recording this and it could be outdated soon, but I don't think so. So tell us some things that you see will be beneficial in the not too distant future. Well, you and I deal with leaders for the most part. And one of the things that, that I believe very strongly is understanding the power of telling your story. Mm-hmm. Um, we live in a culture that's driven by stories. And, you know, if you study the life of Jesus, he spent his life where the people were. In those days, it was the marketplace, the temple square, social gatherings like weddings. Well, guess what? Today, those people are online. Those people are watching, downloading Netflix movies. And we need to be where those people are. And so I think we have to just understand that telling your story, one of the things I'm telling people right now, going back to this COVID-19 virus thing, I'm telling churches, the people, the churches that will weather the storm best are the churches that keep their story in front of their congregation. So you may be telling your story about an outreach that you're doing in your community during this virus, how you're helping people in need. Uh, Those kind of stories are what inspire people to give. I've learned long ago, early in my career, I did infomercials, you know, those direct response television programs like the George Foreman grill type shows. I apologize for that in advance. But, but one thing we learned was in those kind of direct response shows where you want people to pick up the phone and call right away. We learned that you can talk about a product till you're blue in the face. But then when you show the story of someone's life who say, say the George Foreman grill, say Floyd in Cleveland ordered that grill, took it to his family reunion, became the rock star at the family reunion because the grill was so amazing. People at home watch that and think, you know what? If it worked for that dude, maybe it'll work for me. And so I'm telling pastors in the same way, you can preach till you preach your heart out. But if you show the story at the end of that message of someone's who's, someone's who, whose life was transformed because of that message, that's when the people at home think, you know what? If that worked for that guy, maybe it'll work for me. So the power of telling that story is so amazing. So number one, I think it would be uh, telling your story. And, and that leads to probably number two, which is this is the time to prioritize communication and media in your life. If you're a pastor or a leader, you need to think of your communication and media team as your number one tool. They're the ones that are responsible for getting your message to hundreds, thousands, potentially millions of people out there. So many pastors I've seen up to this point blows off their media guys. They blow off the social media people. Uh, They just don't have time for them and they make them just come up with whatever they want to come up with. Let me tell you, now is the time to sit with them, to share your ideas with them, listen to their ideas, take their suggestions. Uh, The churches I've seen that are still blowing and going through this whole crisis are the ones where a communications director is probably the second or third most influential person on the church staff because pastors know they're the megaphone that I'm able to get my message out to people. So I want to know them. I want to be friends with them. I want to you know, interact with them on a regular basis. So uh, getting to know your media and communications teams, and, and, and that's true of, of, of companies, secular companies as well. You're a secular executive telling your story in today's, as I said earlier, the average person in the latest research I've seen sees about 10,000 media messages a day. So telling the kind of story that'll compete with that, that'll cut through that, is the, 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 that's the organizations that will actually get known in the future. Do you think it's even possible in the world we're in today, the world we're about to see, for a leader, owner, minister, manager, boss to operate without a working 
knowledge of media? Because one thing I see is that there's many times a lot of fear. And I, I've heard this more than once. You may have heard it, too, is something to the effect of, oh, I don't want to do I don't want to fool with that stuff. We'll just have somebody, you know, Sally Sue or Joe or whatever. You know, he's he's also he he, he cleans up, the, you know, the, the 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 church or the he does stuff with the business and we're going to let him do our social media also. Is, is that even possible in the world we're in today? Not if you want to be effective, not if you want to be effective. You know, I, I tell you, I tell you a secret. We work with a church, pretty large church uh, in the Midwest that, um, that when, when I started working with them a few years ago, the pastor literally did not even like his communications team. He wouldn't meet with them. He wouldn't talk with them. He, he only would videotape something if he had to. And then he'd just walk in at the last minute. You better get it right on the first take and then leave. And he came to me and wanted to know why his media was so terrible. And he just blamed it on the media guys. And I, and I realized early on, I needed to heal this rift, whatever caused this or whatever the problem is. And since that time, in a, the space of about two to three years, he's nas- now doing national television program and multiple national networks. He's doing a ra- national radio program. Um, he's got this amazing live stream going while this, this virus thing is going on. And, he's, and we've just developed the team into this level of people that are really, really brilliant. And he th- I got an email or a text message from him ju- just recently about how much he loved the last television program that we take for him. And um, so it's a great example that if you're not well-versed in this, if you don't understand it, if you're not willing to give it time, you're going to be amazingly limited in, in everything that you do, whether you're a secular business person or a nonprofit leader or a pastor, you're just going to be limited. We live in a media-driven culture. That's good. I'm excited to hear that he made the shift because many of them do not. Is Do you have a secret? Did you do something secret? Did he just come to the realization, I got to make a change? You have to hire me and pay me a lot of money to find that out. Ah, okay. Um, <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. So, you know, related to that, Phil, we're in a, um, there are, I, I've done, I don't know how many calls just this week. And again, I, I, I record and I do my business from the passenger seat of a motor coach. So I may not be able to say much here. I don't know if I have credibility in this area or not. But I have seen more beds this week than I can imagine. And that might be good. It might not be good. I don't know. But, but I would venture to say that more people are being thrust into doing what we're doing right here. We're, we're recording this for podcast purposes, but we also have video going. There, it may be on Facebook Live. I think I said it and maybe it's going there. But can you give us with your, I mean, I might be going a little bit too small for your skill set, but I know you've got some wisdom here. What can you tell us that would help with the virtual online meeting, online world that we're dealing with now? (laughs) Is it bad to have Um, a bed in the background? Does it need to be made or unmade? Is that a good thing or not? (laughs) I've been on calls. There was a toilet in the background, so a bed is fine. Um, I I actually wrote, I I got so frustrated about this issue. You're exactly right. That I wrote a blog post called how to be a rock star on video conference calls. And um, 
I, you, you just can't imagine the stuff I've seen. And there's a, there's a Zoom call, there's a video of a Zoom call with five or six people where somebody literally does go to the bathroom and you see them going to the bathroom. They just don't, th they're not thinking, you know? Um, and so what, what I would say is it's about adapting. Everything we do now, we have to, it's just like pastors have to think, you know what? I normally do worship on the stage and preach on the stage, but how do I adapt that to a live stream? Doesn't mean I have to be on the stage anymore. Maybe I should make some changes. Same way with a phone call. And I always tell people your background matters. You know, if there's a, you know, a pipe coming out of the back of your head, if there's a picture on the back that's distracting, um, your lighting. I did a conference call with an African American pastor the other day. Sitting, he sat in front of a window. There was just a, a, a dark outline of him and this overpowering white sunlight behind him. You know, it could be an angelic vision. I don't know. But we just have to think about what the background is, what our lighting is, how it looks. Um, be in a place. Here's the thing. Perception really matters. You've heard the phrase perception equals reality. In many ways, perception is more important than reality. So if people are making judgments in the first eight seconds, they haven't had time to listen to you on that conference call. They've looked at the background behind you. They've looked at the clothes you're wearing. They've looked at your hairdo. They've looked at the, how clear the video is. They've looked to see if the lighting is okay. And they, trust me, they have made a decision already about your credibility, your trust, your believability. So it sounds, for so many people, this sounds shallow. And well, it shouldn't matter what my background is. It shouldn't matter how I'm, yes, it does. Mm -hmm. I, well, in all the live streams, I've watched about 50 live stream, stream services over the last two weeks. And I'm amazed at the number of pastors. And I'm all for, you know, the t-shirt and jeans guys. I'm a t-shirt and jeans guy. I got a t-shirt on right now. Yeah. But I, the number I watched that looked like their t-shirt had been wadded up in a sock drawer for a month. And they just took it out and put it on. A, a half-baked logo or in on the side. Just wrinkled everywhere. Baggy. And I'm just thinking, okay, we're going through a virus right now. I'm concerned about my money. I'm concerned about my future. Do, do you look like the kind of guy I, I can trust for me to send money to? Do you have that kind of credibility when I look at you? No, they don't. So I'm not, you don't have to wear a coat and tie. I'm not an advocate for that. However, I'm just saying we as Christians, if we thought more about the perceptions of other people, I think it would change the way we do a lot of things. And, and, and as you say, conference calls are a good place to start. So just up your game, you know, go to my blog at philcook.com, cook with an E. You can, you know, Google conference calls and you can see what I wrote, but it really helped people, I think, to just up, up their game because it goes to your credibility and the trust factor. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a word that's thrown around that relates to this called authenticity. And one of the things I wrote down on my notes that you just led right into was, and, and I'm going to ask you to discuss this and maybe go into a little more detail, authenticity versus excellence. Now, I don't think we are shooting for perfection, but I love the word excellence. And to me, you know, in, in the media that you talk about, and I think it's one of the things that probably calls a little bit of challenge for me. And sometimes in the creativity with, with Christians, I don't have the skill sets, but I know what I like and I don't like. And there's some of the movies and things that are just challenging. But, and let me give you an example. You just brought it up. You mentioned that a lot of the pastors went to just standing on the empty stage with no one out in the audience, they just moved to the same thing. And to me, that was a little creepy, truthfully. Oh, yeah. But then I saw, yeah. but then I watched a Jimmy Fallon clip 
And he's doing it at his kitchen table. He's doing the Tonight Show at his kitchen table with one of his mm-hmm. daughters crawling on his back. He does his monologue in a very tongue-in-cheek way. His daughters, he says, would you like to listen to the monologue? And they both shake their heads no. And I'm just, truthfully, I'm admiring his creativity. Now, did he have to work hard to make that authentic? Maybe, I don't know. But can you just maybe go a little bit deeper into authenticity? You know, I just want to be me. I'm going to be real versus a standard of excellence. Um, and he, before I answer that, let me just say, a guy like you know Fallon has, a, has a, a team, a creative team around him. And I wish pastors would take that seriously. I mean, maybe you're a small pastor and you can't afford it, but you could at least get two or three creative young people around you to feed you ideas. That's, that's the advantage. He's, he's listing from real pros, but the most successful pastors I know today are guys that have a team around them, feeding ideas, doing research, giving them, you know, feeding them material. And so never underestimate the power of, of help, getting help because I think today it matters more than ever. But as far as excellence is concerned, excellence is a little bit of a vague term to me. Um, I, 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 certainly excellence is important. Um, we always want to do things as well as we possibly can. There's times, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm on a kick right now is a couple churches have been doing these live streams during this virus stage where um, they're pre-taping, they're, they're pre-taping the, the live stream. And I don't mind that. There's no evidence that, you know, live, live is better than pre-taped or either way, but he does it, but he, they're pre-taping it and doing it so well that it looks like a television program when they play it back as their live stream. It doesn't seem like it's a real live worship service. I kind of believe that you know, a live stream should be a little rough around the edges because that does matter to people and it feels authentic, as you say. So I do, I do believe there's a time when being authentic is more important than being excellent, but I think we can accomplish both. And really being excellent to me is, you know, it's, it's, uh, I looked up the word relevant because relevant was the same thing. It was real popular years ago. And I looked up the word relevant and the definition of relevant essentially means not hip, not cool, not with it, not contemporary. Relevant essentially means the right tool for the job. If it's relevant, that's the tool you need. You're doing the right thing. And that's the way we need to think of excellence as well. Are we doing the right thing? I could be doing an excellent sermon, but I could be preaching at the pulpit to people that aren't in the audience, not relating at all to people on my camera. That's not excellent. So I think that we just need to think about what's appropriate. I, I, the word I would, I would throw out there is adapting, adapting. We have in Hollywood, um, you know, when, when a producer buys a book and makes a movie based on that book, they can't film the book. It would be a 99-hour movie, and, and, you know, they have to shorten it. They have to cut out scenes. They have to compress characters, combine characters, add characters. And the, the Oscar for the best screenplay of that movie is called Best Adapted Screenplay. And it's adapted. It means it wasn't created from nothing. It was adapted from another work, another platform. And so Hollywood understands that you can't go from one platform to another without, without adapting. So whether you go from a traditional church service to an online service, whether you go to a webinar, whether you decide to make a film, a short film, whatever, we're always having to adapt. And figuring out what works in that medium or that platform, that's the single most important thing you can possibly do. Excellent. Well, one of the things that I wanted to talk a little bit about Cook Media Group, and, and it's interesting, I love, your, um, I love your tagline, getting your message heard in a noisy world. 
which is uh, which is really really cool. What, what in general? Who's your ideal client there? Who do you typically work with with Cook Media Group? You know, we've worked. I've done Super Bowl commercials. We've done all kind of secular things over the years, but but we really focus on Christian projects. I, I think the stakes are high right now, and I think we need to engage the culture more effectively with media projects. And so. Uh, the documentary I mentioned a minute ago, we're working with actually Trinity Broadcasting Network doing that. It's part, it's a series on the rise of Christianity on every continent. Um, we've worked with, there, there are a number of churches that we work with right now, helping them with the television program. Other churches, we're helping them with their live stream or with other issues related to maybe rebranding. We do a lot of, oddly enough, we do a lot of work helping churches and ministry organizations change their name. That's, that's a bigger thing than people realize. It's a bigger question and a complicated process, but it really does matter. And so anytime a leader of an organization realizes we're not getting our story out there the way we should, they will often call us and, and we step in and we can work with social media, websites, design issues. We do a ton of work with organizations uh, with short videos. We just, there's an organization in Charleston, South Carolina called Water Mission, a fantastic organization there. Their vision is to get safe, clean drinking water to the 2.1 billion people around the world that don't have it yet. And they're a, an amazing organization. And we've started sharing short videos about the work they do. What we've discovered in the last few years is short videos, and I'm talking four to six minutes, have become the number one marketing tool in America. More organizations are making short videos to tell their story because we are a story-driven culture. And um, more bandwidth is actually, I understand, is taken up by short videos than anything but Netflix and Amazon Prime. In fact, this past year, short videos actually um, took over first place of the most watched content online. Since the beginning of the internet, pornography was the most watched stuff online. How tragic is that? But for the first time last year, short videos have taken over. So if you're a pastor, if you're a business leader, if you're a nonprofit leader, let me tell you, telling your th story through short videos. When we did all the media leading up to the opening of the Museum of the Bible, we literally told hundreds, did hundreds of short videos for fundraising, marketing, awareness, uh, membership, all kinds of things. And, and I've traveled all over the world and people tell me in India and a guy told me in Mongolia back in November, hey, I saw those videos you did for Muse Museum of the Bible. I got to get to D.C. and see that thing. So they just have an amazing reach. So I say that to... We, we've created a site for the Salvation Army where they have an amazing now department that does short films that tell their story and they're sharing them all over the world. So that, that's a really big part of what we do these days. But um, we're here to help leaders tell their story through media in whatever platform that happens to be. That excellent. That was a great that was a great tip or nugget you gave there on the short video, because you know, most people are digesting these things via their phones. You know, they're not sitting in front of big screens like, you know, you and I did when we were growing up. And so, and, and I think many times it's difficult for, for some of us to make that shift that there are generations that they will not own a television. Yeah, true. My daughter in New York is one. She has no TV. Uh, she's a musician. She's 30, lives in New York City. And um, her, her laptop and this or her connection to the world. That's what she watches everything on. So um, it's absolutely true. Correct. And I know a, I know a guy in, in your industry may not want to hear this, but, you know, there may be a day that they don't allow, you know, 50, 100 people to gather in a theater. We might we haven't had anyone in a theater in the last 60 days or 30 days. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Nobody can go to theaters now. So they're releasing movies a lot earlier 
Uh, now they're they're skipping the theater release. They're going straight to Netflix or Amazon Prime or some other you know iMovies, whatever. And um, it is definitely changing changing the business here in Hollywood. Sure. Well, Phil, I you and I, I think especially with a lot of things with uh, the culture and things changing, it it we could have a conversation for a long period of time. But we're we're butting up against the time frame that I like to stick to, especially when we just said four to five minute videos, and now we're getting close to sixty minutes. So that that, that podcasting is a little bit different. But um, tell me, Super Bowl commercial? You had a couple of Super Bowl. What was that like? A lot of pressure. I'll tell you that a lot of pressure because so much money is on the line. Um, yeah. And so we, it's, it's, you know, advertising is interesting. The reason I shifted and I love commercials, I think 30 second commercials, it's a great example that you can tell some remarkable stories in 30 seconds. So never, never think this is why I tell preachers, you don't need an hour to preach. You can tell remarkably amazing things in a short amount of time. Um, but one of the things I realized is I don't want to get to the end of my life and realized I did an amazing job telling people about Texas Pete hot sauce. Um, nothing, no problem with Texas Pete hot sauce, you know, but, but I just want to raise the standard a little bit and feel, go to bed at night, feel like, feeling like I shared a more significant message. And what's really funny is we do, we have a nonprofit. My wife and I started called the influence lab. You can find out about it at influencelab.com. And we do it because we've gotten so many invitations internationally to come and teach about media. And we've paid for it out of our own pocket. And, you know, we're trying to get people to help support it. And so we can, so we can do more, but we have top level, A-list Hollywood professionals, directors of photography, writers, designers, filmmakers coming to me saying, I spent my whole life doing primetime TV. I would like to do something more meaningful. I will go wherever you want me to go in the world and teach media. I'll do it for free. Just give me a plane ticket. I'll do it for free. I see that a lot. So um, nothing against people that are involved in the secular industry. My, my best friends are, but, um, I just think that for me, I wanted to do something that ultimately matter a lot more at the end of the day than selling another Cadillac or another Jaguar, uh, something that really mattered. Sure. Very good. Very good. Well, Phil, I had a couple quick questions to wrap up, but how can people get in touch with you? I, I will, will include in the notes, uh, some links, but what's the best way just verbally so that people might be listen to this while they're driving. Sure. I mentioned, I mentioned my blog at philcook.com, P-H-I-L-C-O-O-K-E.com. Our, co- our company is Cook Media Group. So you can go to cookmediagroup.com. Uh, if you're interested in our, in our nonprofit, the Influence Lab, you can just go to influencelab.com. But really my blog at philcook.com is the heartbeat of everything. I have a newsletter you can sign up for. It's free. It'll email you the top five posts every week. Um, and I'm dealing with all this stuff about the intersection of faith, media, and culture. And if you're interested in that, that's where, where I'm at. I've got some books out there. You can Google me on Amazon. And, and um, so, yeah, if, if people go there, they can find out really what they need to know and, and engage me. Feel free to send me an email. You can do it through my website. We can talk, and I'd be ha- love to hear from people. Yeah, excellent. I, I know I enjoy that. Thank you for that. What um, You know, this is an, an odd time. I like to kind of wrap up with a couple questions like, what's next for you, but I, I think I'm going to ask you, what are you excited about right now in this interesting time that we're in? What are you excited about? I'm, you know, I, I, something that I've kind of referred to before, I'm excited that leaders are starting to recognize how much media does matter. Um, I spent so much of my life beating my head against a wall, trying to get pastors, nonprofit leaders, even business leaders 
to realize the power of media. Business leaders were the first to come on board, then maybe nonprofit leaders and pastors have been the slowest. Um, and I, I, I just see this virus as a, a, an accelerant, you know, because it's forced people who, you know, people would actually tell me, you know, online is not ministry. You, that's not ministry when you're preaching to somebody online or when you're doing a short video, that, that's not ministry. Well, guess what? Those people are changing their tune pretty quick. And when they're forced to, to you know, forced to into a place where that's their only way to minister, they suddenly realize the power of that. So I just say that I, I, I think the most exciting thing out of all this is your churches and other organizations that just understand finally that media really does matter. Creativity matters. We need to honor, grow, and develop our creative people because that's the way we're going to tell our story in the future. Yeah, that's good. You know, sometimes we won't make change until we're forced to, and it seems as if we may be forced into a change in a lot of areas, you know, outside the church culture also. The title of our podcast is Seek, Go, Create, and I'm sure you could guess, Phil, that those words have some meaning and some spiritual background, but which one of those words jumps out to you? We actually talked about a few of them while we were on the podcast. Which one jumps out to you and why? Last question for you. Well, honestly, I'm obviously I'm the creative guy. However, honestly, I'm I'm really an explorer. Uh, you know, I really an explorer. David Livingston is the hero of all time for me. Um, the great missionaries of the Victorian age who went out from the UK with no thought of ever coming back. Um, I just love explorers. I love people that are going to go into uncharted territory. On my my laptop background. I have the script, scripture from Paul about, I, I want to preach the gospel where no one's ever preached the gospel before. I want to go where nobody's ever been before. And so, you know, the seek, go are big parts for me because I think if we're going to be creative, we've got to constantly be pioneering new ideas, trying new things. I wish churches had a research and development department in their church where they could try new website designs, new print ideas, new, uh, new ways to reach people. And so I'm a big time explorer, but at the end of the day, probably I'm the creative guy. I love to sit around and come up with new ideas, but um, I have to say the, the go part turns me on. Yeah. Well, they're all good words. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for joining us, Phil. I, I really appreciate it. I knew this would be fun and also knew it would probably be difficult to kind of compress it into a, a 60 minute time frame. I appreciate you just yeah, we've been a long we time. Have, we? we have. Thank you for that. For those of you listening, I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have. I have a big favor to ask. Please subscribe if you're not already subscribed. That will connect you with us so that you do not miss any episodes. We usually release a new episode every Monday, but we have been known to add an extra episode on Thursdays every so often. Thank you again for being a part of the Seek Go Create podcast, and we will speak with you again very soon. <laughs>